Will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning? God, our loving Father, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit today. Open our hearts before your word and move within us to bring to light that which we need to know and hear. And Lord, that you would give us um, the strength by your Spirit to follow your word, to put it into practice, to live it out. And Lord, as we come before your word, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts, that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We give you those relationships in our lives that are strained, and we pray for your peace and reconciliation where it is needed. May that process begin with us. And Lord, we lift before you those whom we know and love who are sick, who are recovering from medical procedures or facing uncertain diagnoses. And we pray your healing mercies upon your people. We lift up our country and its leaders. We pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up our men and women in uniform and thank you for their service to our country and pray your protection over them. Ask that you would bring them home safely to their loved ones. And Lord, we um, lift up your church here at Hope and around the world that we might uh, be your light in this dark and hurting world. Lord, use us for your good and your glory here on earth. And Lord, we um, think of those missionaries around the world whom we support, and we pray for them and ask that you would strengthen them and guide them and use them to extend your, your gospel to the ends of the earth. We think of Robbie and Joyce Hamd in Beirut, Lebanon. We think of John and Diane Davis in Laredo, Texas. We think of Paul and Elizabeth Branch and their family in Guatemala. And we think of uh, Miguel and Tatiana Broche in Camajuani, Cuba at our sister church. And we pray your blessing over that whole family of faith that you, have, that you are continuing to build there. We think of Pachi and Marilyn Quesada in Havana, Cuba, and ask your blessing over their ministry. And we lift up uh, Benjamin and Monica Bailey in the Middle East and just pray that you would watch over and protect them and use them to extend your grace and your love into that part of the world. Lord, we um, thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you in freedom. And uh, we just pray your blessing over this time we have together in your word this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be reading from the third chapter of the book of Galatians, and you may follow along in the Bible in the seat in front of you or in your bulletin or on the screen behind me, Um, but uh, just give you a little bit of background uh, before we launch into this chapter, so if you haven't been with us for the past couple of weeks, you might still be able to know kind of what's going on. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a group of churches that he had started about two years before uh, this letter was written. And uh, he had been there, he had preached the gospel, he had shared the love of Christ with these groups of people in these various towns, and uh, then he returned home. And in the ensuing two years, uh, new pastors and leaders came into these churches and started teaching them that it's good to accept by faith 
the love of God through Jesus Christ. But we must also obey the law of God that's in the Bible. And we need to dress certain ways and eat certain ways and do certain things to our bodies to make sure that we are in compliance with the Word of God. And um, these other pastors and teachers were imposing biblical laws on the people of Christ and basically telling them, you're, you're, yes, you're saved by the love of Christ, uh, but you also have to keep your salvation by behaving well and following these rules. And these teachers were unusually successful in their appeal for a couple of reasons. One is they could show God's people in God's word exactly where it said, you may not eat these things, you must dress this way and not that way, and these are the ways in which you must conduct yourself. The problem was that Paul understood something that these new teachers and pastors had failed to grasp, which was that Christ had completely fulfilled the law of God and satisfied the righteousness of God. And so when he laid down his life for us, we are free. We are no longer under the obligation of the law. And so Paul is elaborating that truth as we pick up in chapter 3, verse 15, And here he's going to use uh, an illustration to sort of carry the point that Christ has fulfilled the law and we are no longer under the obligation of the law. So we're going to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 3 and read, read through the end of the chapter. Brothers, let me make an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later did not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It it was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. 
So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, that faith has come. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Menelaus, 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 is that the proper pronunciation, Menelaus? Well, there you go. I learn something new every day. Menelaus, did I say that right? Okay. So some of us know who that was, presumably. Um, That's good. So, if I'm not mistaken... Menelaus was uh, either raiding or in a battle somewhere, and he was about to strike down uh, his opponent and everyone present, and he drew his sword to strike down uh, a woman named Helen, and when he got close enough, uh, he saw her, and his sword dropped from his hand, and he dropped to his knees. Her beauty was breathtaking, if you will. He was utterly stunned by who she was. And Menelaus, Menelaus, I'm going to get this right, it's not Santa Claus, it's Santa Claus. All right, Menelaus um, took Helen as his wife. The problem was that Menelaus was somewhat of a brute. And at some point, a a man from the city of Troy named Paris came and took Helen from Menelaus. And I think we all know what happened next, right? The Trojan War. And so Menelaus was Greek, and he summoned, oh, I don't know, 5,000 of his closest friends And they all descended upon, by sea, uh, the city of Troy. And then you get this lovely back and forth, right? As Menelaus has come to vindicate himself and the the taking of his bride. Uh, And so um, now this is where the whole thing I, I, I promise I studied this last night. I, I, these Greek names are killing me. Um, but Menelaus goes to uh, vindicate his loss and calls out Paris, and the two of them go to battle. And uh, 
I can't resist this joke, so just bear with me. So Paris, much like the city after which he is named, uh, retreats in shame in the battle. And, uh, um, sorry, I just had to. Um, so Paris is humiliated, and Paris's brother, come on, help me out, Hector, thank you. How could I, Hector, that's just like so normal. So Hector goes to vindicate the shame of Paris and kills Menelaus, right? And now it's game on. And so the, the Greeks are now going to avenge the death of Menelaus, and it gets rather complicated, but we'll just keep, we'll just skip 10 years of, of uh, siege and war and get to the point where most of the main characters are dead and there is one person left, the youngest daughter of Trius. Trius was the king of Troy. Did I get that right? Okay. Well, this was Paris's dad and so Paris's youngest sister uh, it is in Greek lore post the Iliad. Uh, it is the death of, give me her name. No, um, yes, uh, Polyxena, Polyxena, all right? It is the death of Polyxena that finally vindicates the Greek position in the whole Trojan conflict. And what I'm trying to get at, if you can bear with all of that, is this idea that vindication comes by death. And, and typically, in, at least in the ancient mentality, one was vindicated by inflicting death upon another. And all of ancient history follows this code, if you will, until we get to one person. And, and that is the person of Christ, who takes this whole idea of vindication by death and turns it on his head. And so, Paul, the apostle who wrote these words, understood this massive shift in what humans believed. Those who followed Paul into the pulpits of the churches in Gala did not really understand what Christ had done and what it meant. They were still sort of following the ancient code that we must vindicate ourselves. And what they were trying to put to death was their sin and the sin of their followers. Um, let me just try to tell you, as a pastor, if I thought it was my job to vindicate myself through the putting to death of your sins, I would be one very frustrated individual, would I not? I'm not looking at anyone in particular, just all of us collectively, all right? But if I thought it was my job to kill your sin, how pleasant would it be to be a member of my church. Not so much, because I would constantly be on you. 
I would constantly be after you. I'd have my sword drawn in my attempt to vindicate my position. Well, Paul understood something. That through the death of Christ, sin had been vanquished. We, the sinners, had been vindicated. Not because we drew our swords, but because Christ rendered himself on our behalf as a sacrifice. A sinless life. And I want to take us into this idea of vindication and talk about what Paul is saying really to us. Yes, he's saying this to the churches in Gala first and foremost because they were the ones who had heard of this grace. They had been taught in this grace. They had been born into the grace of God through Jesus Christ and then were letting themselves be led astray from this new idea back into these more ancient ideas of how we vindicate ourselves in this world. Paul's first reminder in this passage is the call to follow the promise. Follow the promise of God, he says. Let me remind you, there's been a promise that God has been giving since Adam and Eve left the garden. And Paul picks up on the promise to Abraham. And he says that if we're to follow the promise of God, we must trust fully in the covenant of God. We must trust fully in the covenant. Paul reminds us in verse 15 that this covenant is completely irrevocable. He tells us that a human covenant cannot be revoked once established. How much more so, the logic is, a covenant born of the mouth of God. The covenant of God is completely irrevocable, and it leads straight to Christ. Paul goes through a rather uh, strange little argument to point out that the promise that God made to Abraham was pointed at one person who would come to vindicate all sinners. It was pointed at one man who would come and offer himself. I don't know if you remember the story, but Abraham was told to sacrifice a series of animals. And he did so, and he was called to, to cut them in half, which at that stage of human history had to be no small task. And so Abraham goes through this elaborate process and lays the halves of the animals out and creates sort of a bloody aisle down the middle of these sacrifices. And then God puts Abraham to sleep. And God comes and passes through in the form of a flaming pot. God passes through the halves of the animals. Typically, in an ancient covenant, when an animal was sacrificed, both parties would walk together through the halves of the animal, and they would say, at least metaphorically, may it happen to us as it has happened to this sacrifice if either of us break the terms of our covenant. Well, in Abraham's case, he was asleep. 
and the presence of God passed through the halves of those animals. As if to say, may it happen to me if either of us break the terms of this covenant, which, in fact, we did through sin. And so God says, essentially, I'll take it. I will pay the price for the breaking of this covenant. And Paul points this out in his illusion or his illustration. But it is that covenant promise that we are to take to heart. To remember it is completely irrevocable and it leads straight to the cross. We're to trust fully in the covenant and we're to rely fully on grace. Paul tells us in verse, verses 17 and 18 that there is this um, tension, and we'll get to this later in the passage, between the law and grace. But he says, he says to these people who have been born into the grace of God through Jesus Christ by faith, and then led into the law, into the back into the bondage of the law by these false teachers, he says to them, no, 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 no. The law doesn't trump grace. It doesn't work that way. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit, and we, we will talk about the law in the next section. But essentially in verse 17, Paul's message is to us, don't displace Christ's work. Don't displace the work of Christ with your own. So if grace is a bathtub full of water and you go and start putting your works in, it's pushing out the grace of God. And Paul says, no, 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 no. When the law came, it didn't come to abolish the promise. It came for a reason. We'll talk about that reason in just a second. But go back to the promise. Verse 18. If the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. So, the quick point there is it wasn't that God's promise to Abraham wasn't getting the job done and he had to replace it with the law. The point was that God's promise to Abraham will stand forever. And the law was given for a reason. Now, let's take a look at that reason as we first remember our call to follow the promise of God. We also have to face the law. We need to understand why God gave the law We need to see the reason for the law. Well, what does Paul tell us in verse 19? He asks the question, what was then the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed by who the promise referred had come. So, Paul tells us that the reason for the law is that it points straight to our sin. Here's how it works. God says, here is my law. I am perfect. I am holy. I am sinless. 
I am God. Here is my law. Here is my standard. Go ahead. Try to meet it. Go ahead. We can't because we're not, we're none of the above. We're not holy. We're not righteous. We're not sinless. We're none of the above. And so God says, here's my standard. And he does this for a reason. Because as we encounter the standard of God, what do we realize about ourselves? We're not so holy. We're not so righteous. We're not so godly. And so, Paul reminds us that the law points straight to our sin, but also that it reflects who God is. And so, in the contrast between who we are and who God is, the law is a helpful tool in showing us at least who we are not. Um, This may come as news to some of you. It... uh, would have come as news to me at one point in my life. Uh, You're not God. You're not. And the law is our reminder that we are not God. That we are human. We are fallen. We are sinful. We are in need of something. So, as we follow the promise... We must face the law. We must see the reason for the law. And we must see the tension in the law. I believe... um, Okay. I'm going to break out a text message that I got this week. This is from uh, my friend in Missouri who was in a... uh, hunting blind accident last year and is paralyzed from uh, the waist down. And uh, we have always had um, rather full theological discussions with each other. Um, he's the, the potter, the artist who, makes, who made our communion ware, the cups and plates we use during communion. And... Uh, He sent this to me. I believe I know finally what you have been talking about all these years about this place of tension the Lord wants us to be at. Middle ground, not left or right where we're comfortable, but smack in the middle of the conflict. Hmm. There is a reality in which God calls us to live. And it's a, it, there's, a, there's a tension there between, in this case, the law and grace. And what is it that, that God wants us to see here? That the law leaves us in bondage. That is, we are given God's standard We see that we cannot live up to it. And we are left in a difficult position. One of exclusion. We cannot meet the standard and therefore we cannot be together with God. We are separated from Him. 
and we're left in bondage to sin. But this same law also leads us to Christ once we have reached the end of ourselves. Now, what's amazing about this is the way that the law works, it doesn't seem to matter which direction we go in relation to the law. We will eventually reach the end of ourselves. I'll give you the two extremes. One is the rebellious soul who just takes off in blatant disregard of the law of God and says, forget it. I don't care. I'm going to live free. I'm going to do this or that or whatever I want. Eventually, that person will come to the end of themselves. You have in the uh, story of the prodigal father, really, the son who goes off and, and lives in uh, sin. And he eventually comes where? To the end of himself. The same is true with the person who tries to win God's favor or standing with God through obedience to the law. That person will eventually wear themselves out. It cannot be done. We cannot perfectly comply with the law of God. And so, Paul says, one way or the other, the law leads us to the end of ourselves and ultimately to the cross of Christ, which is the only place we can find that peace which we seek. And so, Paul tells us we must follow the promise, face the law, and find the fulfillment that is in Christ. Paul tells us that this fulfillment is a gift, and we're called to open the gift, to depend upon what Christ has done, not on our own efforts or works. The great news of this gift is that we are no longer on our own to live up to the standards of God. It works like this. <laughs> Jesus was sinless. He fulfilled the law of God without flaw, without failing, without sin. And so He offers His life in our stead. And we find in Him the fulfillment of the law, the grace of God, the freedom from the bondage of the law. We open the gift by depending on what Christ has done. And we learn that we are no longer on our own in keeping the law. It has been kept for us. It is a gift. And we are free. We open the gift and we enjoy our new standing. Paul finishes this passage with some powerfully beautiful language that we are all sons of God. This is not a statement which Paul demonstrates in a moment of uh, gender superiority. Paul is simply saying we all in Christ stand in the position of an only son 
the, the total inheritance of the wealth and riches of our Father. That's where we are because of what Christ has done for us. He, says, this is, he goes on to say this isn't about men and women, and it's not about uh, Jews and Greeks, and it's not about slaves and free people. We are all one in Christ. We are all part of the same family. We are to enjoy this new standing because we have an unshakable security in Christ. So, (laughs) if God has established for you an eternal position of inheritance in His family, who can break in and take that away from you? No one. It's security. Your fears and insecurities are vanquished. You are vindicated through the death of Christ. You enjoy that position, that new standing, and you have an eternal family. We are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And accordingly, if you belong to Christ, verse 29, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Did you catch that? He says earlier that Abraham's seed was not many people, but one. And here he says that the many people who are brought into oneness through faith in Jesus Christ collectively make up the seed of Abraham. You are Christ on this earth. We collectively make up the body of Christ. Not just hope, obviously. But all of those who have been given this gift of faith through Jesus Christ. We make up His presence on earth. You are the hand of God to reach out into this world and make an impact for good, for His glory, for His name's sake. Will you pray with me? God our Father, we marvel that through the death of Your only Son, we are vindicated. Our sins are vanquished. Our hope is restored. Our hearts are renewed. And we are given an eternal standing in Your family. Lord, may we reflect that security and strength in the way we live. May we give to others the grace that You have given to us. May we be the first to forgive because You first forgave us. May all of these graces be fully ours in Christ as we live out Your Word in the days before us. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.